All right, I'll just do it this way. Um, Today's scripture reading is from the book of Psalms, chapter 51. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love. Because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. For I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me is just. Purify me from my sins, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back my joy again. You have broken me. Now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence, and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me to the joy of your salvation, and make me willing to obey you. You do not desire a sacrifice, or I would offer one. You do not want a burnt offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. Yeah, so the scripture reading's already over. I thought uh, thought you guys were sitting down after this song. Well, welcome to Lower Manhattan Community Church. I just showed up. Um, We are in the third week now of a seven-week series of sermons called Negative Emotions. I know that sounds like a downer of a topic, but the idea is just to admit it. We all struggle with these negative feelings, so let's talk about it and let's ask whether there's anything within Christianity that can help us to deal with them. So we talked about anger the first week, we talked about anxiety last week, and this week we're coming to the topic of guilt and shame. And with this one, there's a an obstacle that we have to clear right at the beginning that we didn't have to deal with with the others, which is uh, a skepticism about guilt. There's no nobody doubts that that anger and anxiety are real problems, the stuff we talked about the last couple of weeks. But with guilt, I there's this sense you get among uh, sophisticated, educated types that it's kind of this passé problem that we should have graduated from by now. That guilt is the result of um, you know, a, a previous generation's mores, or it's the result of um, a religious or conservative upbringing, and that, um, you know, we, we don't really need guilt. Well-adjusted adults can just kind of get over guilt if they get their stuff together. You hear Catholic guilt, that phrase used in, in this sort of way. You know, I have this Catholic guilt, like this silly, illegitimate guilt from my Catholic upbringing. Uh, there was an episode of 30 Rock that captured this well. Uh, Tracy is talking to Jack, and he, he's talking about how he wants to convert to Catholicism because he can just go to confession, and then all his bad stuff is forgiven. And uh, Jack says, let me actually read this to you, and we can put this up on the screen. Jack says, that's not how it works, Tracy. Even though there's the whole confession thing, that's no free pass because there is a crushing guilt that comes with being a Catholic. Whether things are good or bad or you're simply eating tacos in the park, there is always the crushing guilt, miming the act of self-flagellation. 
Trace says, I don't think I want that. I'm out. So Jack turns to leave, and he says to himself, somehow I feel oddly guilty about that, and then crosses himself. It's good, it's good. You know, this, this kind of false guilt, this manufactured guilt. Nietzsche was the one that said, morality is made up. What this is, is it's uh, weak people, like preachers, guys like that, who need to control the strong warrior types. And so they make up morality, and then guilt is their tool of manipulation. You know, to try and make people feel bad for doing what everybody wants to do anyway. So is that what it is? Is, that, is guilt kind of made up? Is it just a tool of manipulation used by the church or by our parents. Uh, one of the things I want to convince you of this morning is that that's, that's, could, nothing could be further from the truth. The guilt is, is every bit as deeply rooted and universal and naturally occurring as anger and anxiety are. Everybody deals with it, even though you're kind of embarrassed to admit that you deal with it. Everybody deals with it. And it has to be addressed head-on, just like anger and anxiety cannot be repressed um, it has to be addressed head on if we're, if we're going to make any headway with this problem. So I want to talk about it this morning uh, with four sections under four headings. Uh, the first is guilt versus shame. I want to talk about the difference between those. And the second is what do they feel like? What do guilt and shame feel like? The third section will be how we usually try to deal with them. And then the fourth section will be the Christian answer. So guilt versus shame, then what they feel like then how we usually try to deal with them, and then lastly, the Christian answer. So first, guilt versus shame. This first section, all I want to do is try to distinguish these two feelings from one another. There are two different ways of differentiating guilt and shame that you'll see commonly in the literature on these subjects. So I want to give them both to you because I think they both have some uh, merit and they're not mutually exclusive. Um, So it's two different views, two different ways of carving up guilt and shame. The first way of, of... differentiating them would be to say that guilt is about something you do and shame is about who you are. Um, So, for example, if I um, eat a bowl of ice cream that I didn't want to eat, you know, I feel guilty about that. It's an action. But being overweight is about who I am and I feel ashamed of that. So that's one way of of carving them up. And often they go together, you know, eating the ice cream, being overweight, go together, guilt and shame, two sides of the same coin. Uh, So that's one way of carving it up, what you do versus who you are. The other way of differentiating them would be to say um, guilt is about violating your conscience or violating a code or an abstract law internally, and shame is about being out of alignment with the community's expectations. So in the example we just used, um, I had a, the reason I feel guilty about eating the the bowl of ice cream is because I had a rule, no ice cream this week. And I, and I broke the rule. And so guilt is moral in that sense. I, d- I did something against the rule. I, I, did some, I offended my conscience. There's, there's guilt that goes with that. Whereas shame about being overweight is about relationships. It's about the community. It's about perceptions. It's about not the way I, I am perceived in my group of friends. And, you know, you can, they usually go together. Sometimes they don't. You could have one without the other. So, for instance, uh, guilt without shame would be if you did something that you felt really wrong about, and everybody else knew about it, and nobody else thought it was wrong. Everybody else was like, what's the big deal? They still think you're a great guy or a great girl, but you knew it was wrong. You still feel guilty, even though you don't have shame. Or shame without guilt would be you know, something where you didn't do anything wrong, but there's still this, this loss of face. So um, let's say you, know, you lose a bunch of money, you have to downsize, move to a cheaper neighborhood, start buying cheaper clothes. You know, All your old friends... There's this shame that you feel toward them. Even though you didn't do anything wrong or immoral, there's no guilt necessarily. 
So you can't have one without the other, but they often go together. Um, and the, the other thing I want to say before we move on to the next section is that they can both be secret. Just because shame is, is out there in front of other people, that doesn't mean you can't have secret shame. So secret shame would be something where you only know about it, but you feel like if other people found out about it, you would feel shame once that happened. You know? And so you can have shame about thoughts. If other people knew that I thought about these things, they would respect me less. Same thing with guilt. You can have guilt about thoughts. About, you can have secret guilt. You know, um, If you have the thought, I, I wish we didn't have all these kids. I, that, I don't know where I thought of that example. It's <laughs> definitely not from personal experience. Uh, but just as a hypothetical, if you have the thought, I wish we didn't have all these kids, you feel guilty about that. Nobody else knows. It's not an action. But you feel guilty because you're, you're out of line with a moral standard. You know you should, should feel grateful for your kids, and you feel guilty about the thought. So that's, that's section one, guilt versus shame. Section two, moving on to section two, what do they feel like? What are these two, how can we describe these two feelings? So I want to take them one at a time now, first guilt and then shame. Um, and the, the way I want to describe guilt is that it's a, a sense of nausea or disorientation that results from a moral imbalance. I want to say that again. It's a sense of nausea or disorientation that results from a moral imbalance. Now, what do I mean by moral imbalance? Well, in a lot of languages, the word guilt and the word debt are the same word or are closely related words. So for in, in German, for instance, schuld is... is um, guilt or fault, and schuld in is debt. They're, they're very closely related words. And that's essentially what guilt is. It's racking up some moral debt that you haven't paid. And the fact that you haven't paid it, that you have this moral debt that you haven't paid, this imbalance, this moral imbalance, creates this, this nausea and this disorientation. You, you know this, this sickness you feel when you think about something you've done wrong that you didn't pay for. So let's say you, you scratch somebody's parked car, you scratch it pretty badly, and for whatever reason you decide, you know, because you don't have the money to pay for it or because you don't feel like hassling with it, you decide you're just going to walk away. You're just going to leave. Um, when you think about that, if you have a healthy conscience, not a hardened conscience, you feel guilt. You feel this debt because there's an imbalance. You were supposed to pay for it and you didn't. You got away with something. And so there's a sense of, of nausea and disorientation that goes with that. Shame, the way I want to describe shame is to say shame is a desire to, to hide or desire to cover yourself. The word shame means to cover. and That's the root it comes from. And shame is this just not wanting to be seen, this nakedness. You see this in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve hiding because they feel shame at their nakedness. And so you just want to kind of withdraw and, and not be seen by anybody. And when they go together, you know, it's this, this, this imbalance, this nausea, and this hiding and desire to not be seen. It's, it's a lot. It's a lot for any person to handle at any one time. So uh, that was just real brief. Number two, what do they feel like? Let's move on quickly because I want to save quite a bit of time for number four, the Christian answer. Let's move on quickly to, to section three, which is how do we deal with these things? How do we usually try to deal with guilt and with shame? And again, we'll take them one at a time. So how do we usually try to, to deal with guilt? Well, because guilt is this moral imbalance, um, this sense of imbalance, what we, we want to do to eliminate guilt is to right the scales. Um, and there's two ways that we try to do that. 
The first is by punishing ourselves, and the second is by trying to, to do good things. So the punishing ourselves piece, you know, we did this bad thing, we haven't had to pay for it, we got away with it, and there's this, this uneasiness, this queasiness, this nausea that results, and we think that if we could punish ourselves, that would kind of right the scales and, and make things okay again. Let me read you one person's uh, story. They say this, we'll put this up on the screen. The first time I remember inflicting guilt-motivated punishment of this kind of myself was in preschool after I got angry with a fellow student and pushed him so hard that he slipped and fell, breaking a glass. I felt so bad about having hurt him and so afraid of what my teacher and parents might do to punish me that I picked up a piece of the glass and cut myself, inwardly hoping that the action would protect me from any impending repercussions." course it didn't work i still got reprimanded and received a punishment it was so insignificant however that i can't even recall what happened except that i did get punished and also had a cut on my hand for good measure and that person's story highlights that one of the things that's so nauseating about guilt about the sense of imbalance is you think somebody's going to come along and write the scale somewhere you know you've got this debt on your balance sheet You're, you cook the books every year to make it disappear so nobody can see it but you think that someday eventually somebody it's just bound to happen is going to write the the scales the, the, this debt is going to have to be paid and so you what the feeling is is well better me than them or god or whoever it is so if i can somehow write the scales myself if i can punish myself for this ahead of time preemptively at least then it's within my own control at least then i don't have the sword hanging over my head and i can move on but it, it doesn't work it usually doesn't work it because the punishment doesn't feel like it's enough um and you know it obviously does not have to be Physical, you know, that's a very dramatic example of a kid cutting themselves, um, or you know, the the self-flagellation we talked about earlier um, in in uh, the Nathaniel Hawthorne novel. What is that novel? Scarlet Letter. Yes, uh, you know, the minister whipping himself. It doesn't have to be this physical punishment. It's the, a lot of people punish themselves to try to write the scales by just refusing to be happy, you know, by not letting them in themselves enjoy anything. I read the story uh, this week of a pastor from a previous generation, a Korean war vet, who, uh, when he was over in the war, he was engaged, and while he was there, he was lonely and depressed and went to a prostitute a number of times and never told anybody about it and came back and then... Uh, his marriage was an absolute wreck because he, he didn't want to be intimate with his wife because he didn't feel like he deserved it. And so it's this self-punishment that nobody knew about but him. He probably didn't even realize it himself. This self-punishment because you feel like, well, if I can just do something bad to myself or not let something good happen to me, then that will write the scales and somebody else won't have to write the scales against me. That's the, that's the first way we try to deal with the moral imbalance. The second way we try to deal with the moral imbalance is by doing a lot of good things. So we, you know, to, uh, and if we can't pay off the debt by punishing ourselves, at least we can offset the debt by amassing these moral assets, by, you know, doing good, uh, charity, volunteering, uh, serving at church, all this kind of thing, going to church, being a, a church member. And um, the thought is, you know, if we, can, if we can do enough good, then maybe the moral debt won't matter anymore. This is obviously head and shoulders better than the punishing yourself because at least there's an auxiliary benefit you know at least people are helped so that that's fine and no matter what your motives are when you do good to other people um it doesn't ruin the good that's done but as what i'm talking about here is just as a strategy for absolving guilt it usually doesn't work 
it usually is not a winning strategy. Guilt typically does not budge for good deeds, no matter how many good deeds you do. Because you never feel like it's enough. You never feel like it outweighs the unpaid debt that you have. That's how we try to deal with guilt. These, these twin strategies of punishing ourselves or trying to do a lot of good to offset the debt. Uh, the way we deal with shame, with this sense of nakedness, this embarrassment about who we are. Uh, and by the way, it can be any, shame can be about anything. You know, it doesn't have, it have to be about something you've done. It could be, I'm ashamed because I'm you know, uh, not smart enough or not pretty enough or not thin enough. It can be shame about something that, was, um, that you did a long time ago. It can be shame about something that was done to you, something that happened to you. Um, children that are sexually abused... Uh, which, according to statistics, is 20% of this room, all have shame about that. Universally, there's shame about that. This sense that somehow there's something wrong with me. Somehow there's, there's something that I did that made that happen, something that I should be ashamed about. So shame can be for all these sorts of different reasons. It's just any sense of imperfection and ugliness that we don't want other people to do. Well, how do we deal with that? Two ways. First is by hiding, you know, just uh, covering up, not letting other people see us. Um, you know, you don't go out in public in, in terms of your relationships, your emotions. You don't expose yourself emotionally. When you do go out, you're always wearing a hat and sunglasses. You know, and there's all sorts of ways that we can wear hats and sunglasses on an emotional level, on a soul level. So you just hide. You don't let other people in because you're afraid that if they saw you for who you really are, um, that you'd be ashamed. The second way is that's the other-centered way of trying to deal with our shame. The second way we try to deal with our shame is by trying to expose others. Because um, we feel like if we can see other people's shame, then maybe we'll feel a little bit better about who we are. So this is why we love gossip so much, for instance. What's so great about gossip? It's other people's shame being exposed. And we relish in that. We relish in that because it makes us feel a little bit better about who we are. This is what reality TV is about. This is what um, tabloids are about. You know, it's the uh, feature. Like, look at uh, these pictures of these celebrities looking bad on the beach. Well, why does anybody want to see that? I mean, why do we, why do we, are we excited about seeing celebrities looking bad on the beach? Because we want to see their shame exposed. We want to see their flaws. We want to see their imperfections. It makes us feel a little bit better about our own. Two ways of trying to deal with our guilt. We want to right the moral scales by punishing ourselves to pay off the debt or by doing a lot of good to rack up moral assets to offset the debt. Kind of right the ship, hope to get rid of the nausea. And then the two ways we deal with our shame are by hiding, covering up ourselves, and then by trying to expose others. And what I want to say before we move on to the fourth section, the Christian answer to all this, is... uh, when we look at these ways we respond, you, you see that you, everybody in here struggles with guilt and shame more than you realize. There's some of you that have a very acute sense of guilt or of shame about something particular. You know, when, when we're talking about this, you're thinking of a specific thing you did or a specific aspect of yourself. And, and that's um, good in some ways for our purposes just because you can kind of have something to focus on. Others of you, you don't have anything acute or specific um, but you still feel it. And the reason we know that you still feel it is because why else would you do all these other things that we still talked about? Why else do you feel this frantic need to, to do good and to achieve, to offset your debt? Why else do you feel this need to punish yourself? Why, why do you punish yourself? If you don't feel guilty, explain to me why do you punish yourself so much? Why do you hide? Why do you not want to let 
others close? Why do you relish in others being exposed? If not, that you feel shame. If not, that you feel these things. The fact that we engage in these coping behaviors proves that we all deal with guilt and shame a lot more than we want to admit. So uh, that's guilt versus shame, and then uh, what they feel like, and then how we usually try to deal with them. The fourth and final section this morning, we'll spend the rest of our time on this, is what is the the Christian answer to guilt and shame? So I want to take a few minutes to to lay something out for you, and uh, you may or may not believe it, which is fine. Um, The point is just to, to look at it together and explain it, so whether you believe it or not, at least you understand it. Because Christianity has something that, if it's true, is is light years beyond every other philosophical, psychological, religious approach to guilt and shame out there. The other stuff we've been talking about, anger, anxiety, um, I will admit, other religions, other psychological techniques, there are ways of dealing with anger and anxiety outside of Christianity that are, are somewhat effective. Here, with guilt and shame, we're talking about something different. We're talking about something that if, if what Christianity says is true, what Christianity has is something that you cannot find anywhere else, nothing even close to this. And so I want to take a second to make sure we, we all understand what it is, whether you believe it or not, and, and how it works. So if you are um, even vaguely familiar with Christianity, you know that the, Christian, the central Christian teaching is that when Jesus died on the cross, he died for the sins of mankind which sounds very abstract and very religious. You know, what does that mean? But another way of putting that would be to say that when Jesus died on the cross, what, what that is, is it's, we're looking at what it looks like for God to take our guilt and our shame away from us and absorb them into himself. So I want to unpack that, take a few minutes to do it, first by talking about guilt in relationship to the cross and Jesus' crucifixion, and then by talking about shame. So, guilt. We, we have this sense of moral imbalance that somebody needs to pay for the wrong that we've done. Now, watch what Scripture says about what the cross is. We're going to put these verses up on the screen so you can read along with us. First Peter 2 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. By his wounds you have been healed. Mark 10 says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 1 Timothy 2, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom. And Colossians 2, God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of debt that stood against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. Scripture is very clear that the first thing that happens on the cross, the first meaning of the cross is it's Jesus paying for our debt on our behalf, being punished on our behalf so that we can be forgiven. And there's this very naive, silly objection to all this, which, which goes along these lines. You'll hear people say, well, I don't, why, did, why did anybody have to be punished? I mean, if God's going to forgive, why can't he just forgive? Why does Jesus have to be punished in my place? And that just doesn't make any sense because it's a fundamental misunderstanding of what forgiveness is. So if if you have a nice suit and somebody uh, comes along and spills coffee all over it, um, there's there's only two things that can happen. Either that person can pay for the dry cleaning bill 
or you can pay for the dry cleaning bill. You paying for the dry cleaning bill is forgiveness. That's what forgiveness looks like. But forgiveness does not mean, it's not like you say, oh, it's okay, I forgive you, and then poof, by the magic of forgiveness, the stain disappears. It's not like that. All forgiveness means is you pay for somebody else's debt. They messed up, and you pay for it. And so you, it comes out of your wallet. You have to be the one to front the cost. You have to be the one that go to the dry cleaner. Forgiveness means you pay for them. That's what the cross is. The cross is a picture of what it looks like if Jesus is going to pay our debt for us. Somebody has to pay. Forgiveness doesn't mean nobody pays. Forgiveness means the person who was wrong pays instead of the person who did the wronging. So that's the first thing the cross means is that Jesus assumes our debt. You know, we're trying to punish ourselves to cancel our debt. Jesus is punished in our place. The second thing with respect to guilt that it means, and this, is, this part's kind of often overlooked, is not only does it mean that he pays for our debt by being punished in our place, but it also means that all of his goodness, all of his merit, all of his holiness and righteousness is transferred to us. So it's, it's, a, it's a swap. It's not just, it's a two-way street. It's a, it's a double transfer. We, he takes all of our debt. He, he pays for all of our debt, and we get all of our, his merit and goodness and righteousness. You know, remember we were talking about earlier, we try to offset our badness by doing all these good things. Well, one of the reasons it's important that Jesus lived a perfect life is because he can transfer that perfection to everybody who's united to him. You say, well, what are you talking about? You know, what is this uh, double transfer? You know, he takes my debt, I take his goodness, you know, I don't, like, this is, sounds like something that, like, a theologian in, you know, a monastery came up with in the 1300s, and everybody's been talking about it since, but nobody really understands it. This has no relationship to real life. What is this? What are you talking about here? It, it's, that's not true at all. That objection is not true at all. It, it very much relates to real life, and we see this kind of thing all the time. And the way you can understand it, the way you can understand Jesus taking on our debt and paying our debt for us, and us taking on all his goodness and all his righteousness, is uh, by this concept of union that's all throughout the the New Testament. What does becoming a Christian mean? Becoming a Christian does not mean um, you follow Christ, although that's part of it. It doesn't fundamentally mean you imitate Christ. It doesn't fundamentally mean that you obey Christ or listen to Christ or or, um, try to memorize his teachings. All those things are part of Christianity, but none of them are essential Christianity. What is Christianity in its essence? Christianity in its essence is a person becoming one with Christ, becoming united with Christ. So you, you eat his flesh into your flesh, you drink his blood into your blood when you take the Eucharist, you are buried with him and raised to life again with him when you partake of baptism. You are united with him through faith. You confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. You believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And you're united with Christ. And it's not a metaphor. It's not metaphorical. It's metaphysical. It actually happens. You're actually united to Christ. You become the same person. It's this union. That's what Christianity is, according to the Bible. So if that's true, we know how this works from normal unions, from marriages. If two people get married, if the woman has you know, two and a half million dollars in debt and the man has a net worth of seven billion and they get married overnight the man has now assumed two and a half million dollars in debt and overnight instantly the woman has a net worth of seven billion it's not it's not this abstract legal transaction it's a union it's a union and with that union he gets everything we have 
yippee for him. And we get everything he has. We get everything he has. We're united with him, and so he takes on all of our debt, and we take on all of his assets. Best merger you could ever hope for on our end, and a terrible, terrible deal for him. That's with guilt, and very much the same way with shame. Just as the Bible talks about him taking our shame and transferring his righteousness or his goodness or his moral assets to us, uh, taking our guilt and transferring the moral assets to us. It talks about him uh, becoming ashamed on our behalf so that we can be clothed. You know, we talked about nakedness being the sign of shame. There's all these verses that talk about um, coming to Christ as becoming clothed. Look at some of these with me. Uh, This is from Galatians 3. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Isaiah 61, I am overwhelmed with joy in the Lord my God, for he has dressed me with the clothing of salvation and draped me in a robe of righteousness. I am like a bridegroom in his wedding suit or a bride with her jewels. Revelation 3, I will give you gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness. Or 2 Thessalonians 2, he called you to salvation when we told you the good news. Now you can share in the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. He takes your shame, you get his glory and honor. And you see that, that shame on the cross. That's, I mean, we talk sometimes about the pain of the cross, but the shame of the cross, the shame of the cross is almost worse. He's stripped naked in order for you to be clothed. He's subjected to this public humiliation out there naked between two criminals for the whole world to gawk at and say, well, look, that guy got what was coming to him so that you can be honored. He's brought low so that you can be raised up. He takes all of your shame, all of your disgrace, and then with your union with him, that's what he gets. And what you get is honor and glory and clothed. That's the Christian answer to to guilt and to shame. And it's seen with Jesus on the cross and seen with this idea of our union with him. Jesus on the cross, he pays for our debt. He pays our moral debt by being punished in our place. He gives us all this goodness, and he takes all of our shame and gives us instead all this honor and glory, his own. And like I said, I mean, you know, maybe you don't believe it. Maybe it all sounds like, you know, religious nonsense to you. But if it's true, the the thing that it's important to realize is that if it's true, what it means is that God does love you. And, you know, you've heard that before, uh, God loves you. The the average New Yorker's response is, you know, God loves me. How the bleep do you know? You know, like what, who's to say? Who's to say God loves me? I mean, that's just... Some sentiment, God loves you. What does that mean? Empty words. But what the cross shows us, what Jesus on the cross shows us, is that whether it's true or false, at least it has substance. This is something that's, that's worked out with real nails, real flesh, real wood. It's not a sentiment. It's not a sentiment. It's very real. Because why else would he engage in this kind of union with you unless he loved you? Why else would he take this kind of deal? Why else would he take all of your bad and give you all of his good unless he loved you? If, if there was a guy that did this marriage, you know, married the woman with two and a half million in debt, with seven billion in assets, you, he must really love her. He must really love her. Or he's really old and she's really young and beautiful. But um, <laughs> assuming that's not the case, he must really love her. And that's what we see with God. Why else would he do this? You know, you've heard God loves you, but you see it with Jesus. You see it. Why else would he be willing to be so ashamed on your behalf? Why else would he be willing to punish for the debt that you had racked up? Unless he loves you. 
unless he really loves you. And if he does, love, every psychologist will tell you of every school, that love is the thing that undercuts guilt and shame like nothing else. Love is what pierces guilt and shame, what absolutely annihilates guilt and shame. There's a, a fifth section of the message that's missing this morning. I uh, realized that you know yesterday that I misallocated my time and put too much material into this front stuff. And um, what we need to talk about now, which we're not going to talk about, is well, what are you supposed to do? You know, if this is true, what are you supposed to do about it? And there's this whole section that we need to go into about confession and repentance and faith and coming to Christ and community, the way that you experience that love through other people, which none of which we have time for. Um, so uh, to be continued, you know, you have to come back, um, keep coming back, because we talk about all those things in one way or another every week. I guess what I, I want to close by saying is just, um, if you don't feel guilt or shame, um, then you should just go find another religion, you know, seriously, because this, this is not for you. Christianity is not for you. Um, but if you do feel guilt or shame or both, then good luck, good luck finding another religion or anything that can deal with your guilt and your shame the way that Jesus can. There is this man that lived a perfect life that claims that by his death and resurrection, he wants to take all my guilt and shame away and clothe me. That's what he says. I I don't know what that means. There's this man that says I can be united with him in his death and resurrection. If I follow him, if I place my faith in him, that we can become one person and that all of his goodness will be transferred to me. I don't know what that means. I've been, I've been trying to figure it out my whole life and I still don't know what it means. But I'm going to keep trying. I'm going to die trying. I'm going to spend the rest of my life trying to figure out what that means. And if you struggle with guilt and shame like I do, I suggest that you do the same. Let's pray. Father, when we look at the mystery of Jesus on the cross, we don't know what to think. We feel ourselves moved by it, but we also feel confused, and there's so many parts that don't necessarily make sense. And yet there's also so many parts that are compelling to us and that speak to us and that make us think that there's something to it. God, I ask that by the power of your Spirit, you would speak to our hearts this morning and impress upon us the reality of your love as seen by Jesus, taking our guilt, paying our debt, taking our shame, being stripped naked before the world, and offering to give us all of his goodness and to clothe us with his honor. I ask that you'd help us to feel the truth of it. I ask that our doubts would be erased in the face of the power of your love. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.